Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes we are in Canada, where roadside motels are experiencing a revival. When you think about a motel in Canada, often at times it's it's on the side of a road, like a highway. And it's like right by the road and there's like a gas station next door. Yeah. Um, and so like that's not what we were after. Also ahead, we meet Brazilian top chef Rafael Cagalli, who is pioneering Brazilian fine dining here in London. You know, it's, it's good to show people that Brazilian cuisine has just more than they steak and 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 caipirinha, right? So um, even that is is amazing as it is, but we are growing as a nation as well and, and trying to tell the world that it's got good stuff going on in Brazil. All that's the week's food and drink headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too ahead in this episode of The Menu. In the United States, over the past decade or so, a pattern has taken firm shape in one corner of its hotel sector. The renovation and revival of roadside motels into destinations in their own right. The recently reopened Don's Albatross Motel in Montauk, New York, is just the latest of these finely revived travellers' rests. Well, during the past year or so, a crop of hoteliers have attempted to do the same north of the border in Canada. Among them are Joel Greaves and Devon Valencourt. Last year, the couple renovated a former 1970s fishing lodge in the village of Calabagie in the countryside near Ottawa and revived it as the Somewhere in Motel. Monocle's correspondent Thomas Lewis spoke to them about their first foray into the upscale motel sector in Canada. The story for us started, I was actually on a road trip in my early 20s with a with a friend and we were driving from Vancouver down to LA. And, uh, you know, we were just doing a classic road trip, stopping wherever we could each night in a motel. But we had planned one night at this really cool hotel in Portland called The Jupiter, which was an old converted motel and they made it into this really cool boutique space. And from the rest of the trip onwards, my buddy and I spent the whole time using about all these, you know, little rundown hotel motels that we were staying at of like what the potential could be and like how amazing they could be. And so that really served as the inspiration and remained obsessed with that idea for, well, about the next 10 years. <laughs> and then finally convinced Devin uh, to do this. And I was not super pleased in my corporate world, corporate job, and I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So we just kept on coming back to this idea and how powerful we thought it could be, you know, all the things we do with our brand and whatnot. So yeah, it finally, finally came together. So 10 years for the idea to percolate, inspired by what you'd seen firsthand in the, the boutique motel space, if we can call it that, in the United States. Walk us through then how the search for a motel in Canada takes shape for you both during that time. We really wanted to find a place in a four-season destination that, one, you know, we could operate year-round. Uh, that was really important to us, just from a, both a staffing perspective and, you know, like economic perspective, needed to be year-round. And the really cool thing about Ontario and Canada is that there's lots of really cool little cottage communities that will have little ski hills and that sort of thing. And so we really had about five different markets that we were looking at. We probably, I did a lot of cold calling and we probably went and saw almost 10 places total. When you think about a motel in Canada, 
often at times it's, it's on the side of a road, like a highway and it's like right by the road and there's like a gas station next door. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's not what we were after. You know, we really wanted to create this experience that was about escaping the city, spending time in nature. And we really believe that nature can be restorative for people. And so the setting was really important. And that's, what's so special about this place. We've mm-hmm. got 300 feet of like gently sloping land that's, you know, tree canopied and the, the hotel set back from the, the road. And we're, uh, 10 minute walk from, you know, all the restaurants and, and yeah. bars in the area. And it has a view of the lake. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Forget, can't forget that. <laughs> can't forget the lake. Yeah, the beach is right across the street. Yeah. Beautiful lake and rolling mountains in the background. So it's, it's a really, it's a type of place where you kind of like your shoulders relax and the, uh, and the weight of the world kind of lifts a little bit when you arrive. Yeah. And I suppose with a lot of motels like these here in Canada, there's a, a fairly utilitarian quality to many of these outposts, traditionally speaking. So somewhere to sleep or to stop off at on your way somewhere. Somewhere in was a fishing lodge, I believe, before you took it over. Maybe you could walk us through how you went about changing that, making the motel somewhere where people wanted to come and stay and linger for its own sake, I suppose. We wanted the rooms to feel cozy and casual, but also elevated because we wanted this more upscale feeling for guests. But there's a fine line between still keeping it casual and outdoorsy, but not rustic and not feeling like camping. So we got really excited when our designers came up with the concept of putting in the fireplaces uh, because that was a huge added bonus and just putting real hardwood floors in and these nice nooks that you can cozy up in and read and purposefully having no TVs in the rooms. Those were all details that we knew going into it that we wanted in the rooms and in the spaces. So I would say that's how we approached the style of the interiors. And then in terms of our food and drink, again, keeping it casual and but a very good curated selection of items, but nothing too fussy, nothing too overpriced, but still unique and different and things that you wouldn't find at the local liquor store or grocery store. And like, I I like to call it approachable luxury. Yeah. You know, like we are luxury. We're at a price point that, that is luxury, but uh, when you, especially in Canada and with the state of the hotel industry, luxury for a lot of people means the person in the front desk is wearing a tie yeah. and there's like marble everywhere, you know? <laughs> and our generation, millennials, like that's what, not what they're after. They want a curated experience that's really thoughtful and evokes some like really special feelings for them and allows them to like disconnect and reconnect with the yeah. people special to them. But the people be, in, behind our front desk, they just look like us, you know, like they're, they're cool and they're there to help, you know, curate your experience for you and, you know, send you on the locals only know hikes or to the best restaurants in town. Yeah. yeah. And describe for us, if you could, in broad terms, perhaps, in your opinion, what is Canada's hotel offering, very broadly speaking, like? And I suppose, where did you feel somewhere in would fit into that uh, offering and I suppose how you felt that your motel could offer something that wasn't available before. Oh, totally, totally. Like, I think about a lot of the boutique offerings uh, in Ontario, especially, really cater to our parents' generations in a lot of ways. 
and it just it doesn't have the type of amenities that we care about mm -hmm. and you know it'll be there'll be a like kind of a stuffy spa and like a very very fancy restaurant um connected to it and that's once again not approachable and and like often i think scares away a lot of people and so um, or, or alternatively there's areas in canada that you want to go and see and they have these beautiful lakes and mountains and hikes yet you're staying at the only accommodations available are yeah. very run down and not too pleasant so it's difficult to land on choosing your holiday to be there yeah like we find ourselves we actually a lot of the vacation that we do personally we do it around like really exceptional hotels to stay at and so we seek out the hotels first and then say like oh this will be a yeah. cute place you know it's a drive to destination in new york or whatever it might be we'll find the hotel and then we'll say let's go here wait where is it <laughs> you know um but that like it's just part of the experience and the discovery of that is is really mm -hmm. fun for us so yeah and it's been a little more than a year now that you've been open i wonder uh if you could describe for us who's been coming to stay at somewhere in so far we get, by and large, mostly couples. And so sometimes it'll be a friend's weekend of two couples together, but most, for the most part, it'll be a young couple wanting to, you know, exactly as I described previously, escape the city, get away. Maybe they have kids and they've left kids at home um, sort of thing. We even find a lot of, so we've, we've got, a, you know, different combinations of rooms and we've got some rooms with two beds and often couples will opt for the two bedroom when the you know, king rooms are all full kind of thing because uh, they still want to stay. So we've really, that's kind of our sweet spot couples. But we do get some young families. They're out like wanting to hike and that sort of thing. And every once in a while we get a, a good mix of, of locals as well. We have a good little locals rate for midweek that gets people kind of just escaping what is everyday life life for them and then having a, a, a night off with us. So it's got mm -hmm. kind of a good mix of, of all those things. And we draw from mostly Ottawa. And uh, I would say a third from Toronto. Yep. So mostly drive to destination. I think that concept is far more played out in the U.S. And so we've been all over the U.S., like Tahoe, uh, New York State, mm -hmm. uh, California, and stayed in converted motels. And like that's, you know, both a, as a research project, but also we just we just love the retro charm of, of the entire experience. Um, and I think uh, Canada just is a little bit further behind on that. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful trend because it's a massively underserved need. I, I find it funny that when you think, I, I think a lot of our, our close friends and our, uh, our, our colleagues, when they think about, oh, I want to go away for a weekend, the automatic thought is, you know, often like I'll go, I'll fly somewhere get or drive, on the plane. get on the plane <laughs> or drive to the US, even if it's for a weekend. And so like... Canada just has so much richness to offer in terms of like the lakes and the mountains and whatever it might be that like I think this you know as you call it a trend I think it's I think it's actually just like a, a movement of like people are realizing that their backyard is just as special as going down south for the weekend. Joel Greaves and Devon Valancourt, owners of the Somewhere in Motel in the Ottawa Valley, speaking to Monocle's Thomas Lewis. Up next to the week's food and drink headlines, here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. 
Tokyo has kept its title as the city with the most Michelin-starred restaurants, following the release of the 2023 Tokyo Guide. The Japanese capital is now home to 200 restaurants with at least one of the coveted stars, including 12 three-star establishments. 16 venues were awarded a star for the first time this year, while newly opened Miyajaku entered the guide with two stars. The United States Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, has approved a lab-grown meat as safe for consumption for the first time. California startup Upside Foods has been cleared to create cultivated chicken fillets using cells from living birds. The company will need to be inspected by the U.S. Department of Agriculture before its products can go on sale. But the FDA approval marks a major milestone in the development of lab-grown animal products. Hong Kong and China restaurant operators Pirata Group is planning a major regional expansion. CEO Steen Pugard hopes to grow the company's current portfolio of 26 restaurants to 100 within the next half decade. In the short term, Pugard plans to move further into China, then Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines in the coming years. Those are this week's food and drink headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Lillian. You are with the menu. Renowned Brazilian chef Rafael Cagalli from the two Michelin star Dutera fame recently opened a new restaurant at London's Town Hall Hotel called Elis. That also happens to be the name of his mother's jazz bar in Sao Paulo, and also a tribute to the Brazilian music icon Elis Regina. The relaxed and charming restaurant serves some of the best food from Brazil and Italy, thanks to Cagalli's dual heritage. He spoke to Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco about how Brazilian food is. Finally, claiming international fame. You know, yeah. When I first came to UK, I was just a little young boy, um, around 20 years old, and and my intentions here was mainly to spend a year and study English. Um, and after 20 years, I'm still here. So um, everything started back in Brazil. My I come from a family that has. You know, working in the industry, you know, for my mom's that she always had a restaurant, and my dad had a you know beverage like a factory. So, but I, I was so young, I never had that this could become something part of my life until I moved over here. And uh, when I came over, just to spend a bit of time and improve my English, um, you know, as a little student, I need some some money, right? And after a month, I started working in this little place back in Fulham. That's where everything starts in there, West London. You know, studying and working, and you know, so when you're working in the kitchen, at the first you don't realize it, but you just you, you just think of I, I you know I need to work, I need a job. But then you know, I think I guess this was is part of my. My bloody, let's say, where I fell in love with the cooking and uh, and just everything started developing from there. So working from brasserie places and then moving tours like Michelin star restaurants and 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 I think that make it my my journey. The fact that you you worked there as well. Yeah, I did that as well. So that was like a later stage of my career. That was like so after three years in here, I moved to Italy and then spent like three four years in there. You know, learning the culture, and you know, obviously, they're keen on to learn the language as well. And I had a lucky to be working in one of the best places in Italy, North North Italy, in Lago di Garda, with Stefano Baiocco. So uh, that taught me a lot. And uh, from there, I went to Spain. So I also worked for uh, two big, renowned chefs in there, Martin Berasategui and um, 
kick at the cost. And so, yeah. And then from there, I came back to UK and then went to work for, for the Fat Duck, yeah. And I have a question for you. Of course, you know, you're Brazilian and you did very well here, you know, in, in, in Europe. When, when you say to people that you're Brazilian, how, what do chefs say? I mean, how, how do they perceive Brazilian food? Because it's quite interesting that countries like Mexico, Peru, everybody kind of have an idea. But with Brazil, I still feel that there is some sort of confusion, what to expect from a Brazilian chef. Uh, I wonder what's been your experience. And I, and I think that's changing, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. It, it it is hard, as I said, you know, to stamp, you know, the restaurant. As I say, Brazilian culture is you know, is made it by, depends what part of Brazil you're coming from, right? So, like, let's say where I'm from, Sao Paulo, it's a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, you have influences from all over the world, you know, you have... But it's, I think it's Brazilian is about the way we eat as well, right? You're going back in there, I was in there a couple of weeks ago, I was lucky to be invited for one of the biggest uh, culinary congress, let's say. And for me, it was like, it's an amazing feeling that you just go back and you kind of like regenerate yourself you're discovering more you know about your own country and uh, you know it's about the produce uh, for me as well that you can get there there's a, an amazing you know quality ingredients and and you know obviously when you look into the technique is is apply for you know like a, like a modern a way of cooking let's say right very european if you want to call that but it, yeah, I mean, we are a young country, you know, talking about history, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's good to show people that Brazilian cuisine has just more than they steak in, in, in Caipirinha, right? So um, even that is, is amazing as it is, but we are, we are growing as a nation as well and, 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 and trying to tell the world that, you know, it, it's got good stuff going on in Brazil. <laughs> I agree, I have to say. Maybe I'm suspicious to say that. But uh, uh, And tell us about Elise. I've been to the place. It's beautiful. It's located in East London. You can tell me more about that. But even the name of the restaurant has some sort of family connection for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the idea of Elise came, came up like over a year ago. So uh, just I think it was just during the pandemic at some stage. The hotel uh, approached me and said, hey, there's, there's this space there. Um, you know, it used to be a restaurant called Corner Room, and and you know it's a nice little cozy, cozy place. And uh, I even been there before as a guest. So they approached me and said, "Oh, you know, would you like to to take over?" And I thought, well, yeah, I'm quite busy with the Terra, but I think this could be a great opportunity to do something a little bit more casual. And also, you know, we we have a it's a it's a big team, so we it helps on the food as well, right? So on the wasted. Um, I'm not saying, you know, Elise is, was, is made by wasted food. It's just like when you get a great produce and, and sometimes, you know, the Terra has such certain, uh, like a niche kind of, you know, a way of doing things. And we, we, we have generally have no wasted anyway, but, but I think we say, okay, let's just work it towards more like a casual approach. So Elise uh, was born in this idea where it's, it's more like a easy, uh, accessible approach let's say to the food to the dining as well we like to have a lot of sharing is a sharing concept and and again i bring this pinch of um you know brazilian background that boy italian background you know so a little bit of that as well and inspired by this but the name came from you know when i i was just it was funny because i was talking to my mom and then 
she had a, after her first ever business in, in, in this industry. It was back in, in, in 1980s when she had this pianos bar in Sao Paulo, right? And used to call Elise pianos bar. Uh, it's just like it's a bar, so it used to serve like a bar food, you know, like a bar, you know, it was after Elise Regina, which, you know, if you might know, one of the icons of uh, Brazilian uh, jazz, bossa nova music. Um, and and I thought, wow, that that could be some like, a, you know, elegant name, like a female name that just more like a casual, easy approach. And yeah, that was a kind of like an easy choice. <laughs> And the Terra is actually close to, to Elise in a way. So I think they're both complementary to each other. I think someone that goes to Elise can go to the Terra and vice versa. Absolutely. Right? We are still in the same space kind of thing. So it's still in the town hall hotel. So that the Terra is in, is in the basement and, and Elise is on the first floor. So And I think Elise will be more open to the, the hotel guests as well. As the Terra, we go in a stage where we are pretty much fully booked every day. So it's very hard to get tables in there. And I think Elise will, will give you this more, you know, option, easy option. But I have to say that it, it, they're very two different restaurants, you know. Sometimes people mm-hmm. tend to have a high expectations for Elise. Like, you know, say this is not the Terra, it, it, this is Elise. It, it, we still want to have, like, you know, nice, good food and, you know, easy approach, but... But it's, it's not the same as if you come into the Terra, let's say. Yeah, so. Absolutely. But let's talk about some of the food at Elise. I mean, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. There's a crab linguine, which I thought was excellent. Even a, the, our traditional pão de queijo we had as yeah, a starter. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny, like I was playing, I was talking about the stereotype of Brazilian food. But, you know, you can still use some of those classic ingredients. It's just adding, you know, an extra flair. You yeah, know? absolutely. I, I like it. Uh, you know, adding a flair. So it, but I think that's what I wanted to like. It, it doesn't, you know, you have the, the ingredient there, you have the, you know, is a pound de queijo, yeah, it's, it's a little, you know, cheesy, but, but we serve it together with a focaccia, the bread, there's a little dip to go with that as well. Um, you know, we have um, creme caramel, which we've got, like, we use a guava, you know, so goyabada. So th- th- there is a little touches in there and, you know, you bring, like, you know, a sweetness too as well, so... Yeah, the the the, the comes just mainly for the Italian background that that I have, you know, is 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 yeah, and then using a good quality meat that you find in here. So, have a have a question. I mean, you just came back from São Paulo as well. Uh, you know, I, I I've been living here in London for fifteen years. What what do do you miss a lot about Brazilian food? Because it's quite different living here. And and, and let's be honest, the offer of Brazilian food here in London is not that extensive as well uh, is there anything that you miss from your hometown look if there is one thing <laughs> i can only think of right now is a pastel mm. so this little fried deep fried uh pasties or if you want to call that uh so is it i mean yeah this is one of the things that i can i can say right now that every time i go back i'll make sure I, I have one, otherwise my journey is not the same. <laughs> and I always have a specific place that I, I go as well in Sao Paulo. So, yeah, it's just great. It's always in there and it always tastes amazing. Um, I mean, it generally, I think it's more like the comfort of uh, the food, right? It's the kind of like, you know, you have memories of, you know, it, that when you get up in the morning, you have, you know, probably your mom or nan just got the pen with a pressure cooker cooking beans and you can hear the noise like of the you know the pressure like just going you know like and you get up and you go to school and come back and you know is is that kind of 
it's, it's, look, it's many years ago, so, um, but I, I think it's mainly about the kindness that we have as well. It's not just the food, but it's, it's just about the kind of comfort, uh, the, the human touch that we have and the, the friendliness as well. I'm very glad you mentioned pastel. I mean, it's not pastel, but I, I thought about when I was uh, eating at Elise, the dessert, that donut. Uh, I mean, that, that that was a very special, very unusual. I never tried a donut like this. It was it was so light in a way, you know. Yeah. Uh, please t- tell us the secret of the donut. <laughs> we do we do use it, uh, put it uh, donut recipe standard. Uh, we just apply a technique that you charge with uh, those like a gas canisters uh, with uh, with a gas, so that lights up the the dough, and and then when you fry, we use a ladle that just put it you know in in the fryer and then and then it helps the on the little round shape and we we filled with a, a dose de leche yeah that was probably or we can say like dosage leche you know <laughs> that was probably the best donut i have i had in my life oh I that's have to great say. yeah it's, it's, it was... it's a quite a little adjective little things to, to just keep eating like a popcorn maybe that's your next step you should do like a little stand yeah you know? yeah i got told that just just donuts yeah <laughs> That was Brazilian chef Rafael Gagali, who has just opened his latest restaurant, Elis, in London. And Fernando joins me also in the studio. Fernando, you went to that restaurant. What were your impressions? Is this a sign that Brazilian food is indeed on the rise? Yes, very much so, Marcus, because it took some time, you know, and our, our you know, Latin American uh, almost neighbors, the Peruvians, you know, they did very well in promoting their food abroad. Uh, Mexico as well. Brazil was a little bit of a cliche. You just have those steakhouses. I mean, you have nothing against a good steakhouse, but there's more to that, to Brazilian food, and I think people are finally appreciating. And in Elise, you see that. There's some classic, uh, the classic pão de queijo, our lovely cheese bread. There is the picanha skewer as well so you know it's not that he's you know he's using some of those uh, typical staples from Brazilian food but a little bit more experimental and yes he does have a dual heritage which is something very common in Brazil that's why it's hard to define Brazilian food because it can be a little bit Lebanese a little bit Japanese a little bit uh, you know Angolan uh, it is that mix that makes Brazilian food in a way now Fernando how, how difficult has your life been living in Europe for quite a few years when you travel around the world or when you are in London how difficult is it to find great Brazilian food it is very hard and it's becoming a little bit easier with the opening of restaurants like Elise. And in London, we have Luciana Berry, a very you know famous Brazilian chef. There's an upcoming restaurant called Bossa by Alberto Landgraf, which is one of the best Brazilian chefs as well. So there is a whole movement. And it's not just London. It's in New York as well with Fazano, the new restaurant by Manu Bufara. You know, I, I think if you like Brazilian food and you live abroad, you're... It's a good time. That's my prediction. 2023 is going to be the year of the Brazilian food. Just finally, Fernando, when our listeners go to these Brazilian restaurants or, say, Brazilian grocery stores even, what should they ask for? What is there that the world still hasn't quite discovered? Well, I think, for example, we are very good with pastries. I know it's a cliche to say, but pão de queijo is amazing. And and even, uh, you know, at Elise, my favourite thing about the restaurant... The dessert, they have some special donuts there. They're so fluffy, Marcus. They're incredible. They are, I mean, I even joked with Rafael in the interview that he should do like a little stand selling his special donuts. So I think Brazil does pastry and cakes very well. And that's kind of a hidden secret, uh, to be fair. 
Well, thanks for those recommendations, Fernando. I have to head to the restaurant as well to ask for those donuts. But now that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Portland, Oregon. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for great recipes. And, of course, you will also find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Kelly Mc. Lane. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation, and this week's song has been handpicked by you, Fernando. What do we have this time? It has to be Elise Hegin, of course, because of the restaurant Elise, and this is one of my favorite tracks from her, Casa no Campo. Here we go. Thanks for listening, and until next week. Eu quero Meu Deus.